I'm Wayne Turner, and welcome to the daily podcast of Bible Track. I have developed Bible Track to be both a commentary and a daily Bible reading schedule. These podcasts cover the text and commentary, which may be found at www.bibletrack.org. So, for those who have a busy schedule but do have time to listen to the Bible being read, this podcast is for you. At the end of one year, you will have gone completely through the Bible. Today we're reading the last three chapters of the book of Job, Job chapters 40, 41, and 42. This is the new King James Version of the podcast. King James Version is also available. In chapter 40, God continues speaking. Verse 1. Moreover, the Lord answered Job and said, Shall the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? He who rebukes God, let him answer it. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am vile. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand over my mouth. Once I have spoken, but I will not answer. Yes, twice, but I will proceed no further. Well, God began speaking here in this passage in Job chapter 38. We've read two chapters of God speaking, and this is the third chapter. And Job replies, but then he waits for God to speak further. Job's never heard anything like this before, according to verse 5. God literally speaking to a man. God pauses as he speaks from the whirlwind to make a comment on Job's previous monologues. In verse 2, when he says, Shall the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? He who rebukes God, let him answer it. Nope. A reply simply wouldn't be appropriate or prudent here. Job immediately realizes that now would be just the right time to remain silent and just let God speak. Who would want to be seen contending or reproving God? Now let's remember something here. All of this started in chapter 1 when God speaks of Job to Satan in chapter 1 verse 8 when he says... Have you considered, my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and an upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil? However, this perfect and upright man has made some statements in the course of his monologues that strike us as, well, maybe a little disrespectful toward God. Admittedly, Job's trial had made him a very confused man, and confused men say outrageous things under pressure. Job's comments along the way are quite provocative, but not sinful. Job wanted to hear God speak. Well, here you go, Job. God continues expressing his dissatisfaction with Job's comments, beginning now with verse 6. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Now prepare yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. Would you indeed annul my judgment? Would you condemn me that you may be justified? Have you an arm like God, or can you thunder with a voice like his? Then adorn yourself with majesty and splendor, and array yourself with glory and beauty. Disperse the rage of your wrath. Look on everyone who is proud and humble him. Look on everyone who is proud and bring him low. Tread down the wicked in their place. Hide them in the dust together. Bind their faces in hidden darkness. Then I will also confess to you that your own right hand can save you. Well, if you recall, Job spent considerable time expressing his belief that he was unjustifiably being abused and and even appeared to question God's right to allow him to be treated in such a manner. Job apparently had little or no more understanding of trial than his friends did. 
Therefore, he demanded a hearing before God to make his case. Well, now he has God's attention as God speaks. A rhetorical question, verse 8, is better not answered by Job when God says, Wilt thou also disannul my judgment? Wilt thou condemn me that thou mayest be righteous? In other words, is it proper to redefine God for one's own justification? Now, think about those implications. Better yet, how many people today have redefined their concept of God for their own perverted purposes? That may impress ignorant people, but God and God's people remain unimpressed with those who seek to vindicate their own rebellion against God's word by perverting the counsel of God to do so. Spiritually minded, scripturally informed people, well, they'll see that as heresy. Verses 6 through 14 contrast Job's feeble abilities to those of God. In other words, Job, if you had an arm like God, verse 9, then let's just see what you can do with it. So, what was this trial all about anyway? There's no question about the righteousness of Job before God. That's confirmed in the very first chapter. Job's not being chastised for disobedience, as Job's counselors had suggested. However, we do see in Job a man who lacks an understanding of God's ways. Moreover, it's not like Job didn't have some things in his life that needed some work. We saw in Job chapter 29 what a proud man Job was before the current round of adversity. Well, no more. That pride is gone, and Job is all ears as God speaks now. This bout of trials makes Job an all-new, willing vessel for God. And you know, that's what trial does. It doesn't come upon believers because of rebellion against God, but it comes upon believers... Rather, to sharpen us and make us more usable for God's purposes. We're going to see in the next few verses a behemoth. Verse 15, there he is. Look now at the behemoth which I made along with you. He eats grass like an ox. See now his strength is in his hips, and his power is in his stomach muscles. He moves his tail like a cedar. The sinews of his thighs are tightly knit. His bones are like beams of bronze, his ribs like bars of iron. He's the first of the ways of God. Only he who made him can bring near his sword. Surely the mountains yield food for him, and all the beasts of the field play there. He lies under the lotus trees in a covert of reeds and marsh. The lotus trees cover him with their shade. The willows by the brook surround him. Indeed, the river may rage, yet he is not disturbed. He is confident, though the Jordan gushes into his mouth though he takes it in his eyes, or one pierces his nose with a snare. Well, God uses an illustration from nature here in this chapter when he describes the behemoth. It's a transliterated Hebrew word pronounced the same way in Hebrew, as a matter of fact. Uh, but don't get too excited over a potential discovery of an extinct animal here. This is the only reference to it and probably is describing a hippopotamus. There's no way to tell for certain. Really, it's just a very large animal that's a vegetarian. That's what's being described here. But to summarize the point of its mention, let's take, for instance, a hippopotamus, assuming it may be similar or maybe a hippopotamus in fact. Hippopotamus is hard to hunt with the tools available in Job's time, too big, clunky, powerful, and thick-skinned. It's the kind of animal that you just stand in awe as you observe and, and then you just leave it alone. And then there's the Leviathan in chapter 41. Verse 1, Can you draw out Leviathan with a hook, or snare his tongue with a line which you lower? 
Can you put a reed through his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? Will he make many supplications to you? Will he speak softly to you? Will he make a covenant with you? Will you take him as a servant forever? Will you play with him as with a bird? Or will you leash him for your maidens? Will your companions make a banquet of him? Will they apportion him among the merchants? Can you fill his skin with harpoons or his head with fishing spears? Lay your hand on him. Remember the battle. Never do it again. Indeed, any hope of overcoming him is false. Shall one not be overwhelmed at the sight of him? No one is so fierce that he would dare stir him up. Who then is able to stand against me? Who has preceded me that I should pay him everything under heaven is mine? I will not conceal his limbs, his mighty power, or his graceful proportions. Who can remove his outer coat? Who can approach him with a double bridle? Who can open the doors of his face with his terrible teeth all around? His rows of scales are his pride, shut up tightly as with a seal. One is so near another that no air can come between them. They are joined one to another. They stick together and cannot be parted. His sneezings flash forth light, and his eyes are like the eyelids of the morning. Out of his mouth go burning lights. Sparks of fire shoot out. Smoke goes out of his nostrils as from a boiling pot and burning rushes. His breath kindles coals, and a flame goes out of his mouth. Strength dwells in his neck, and sorrow dances before him. The folds of his flesh are joined together. They are firm on him and cannot be moved. His heart is as hard as stone, even as hard in the lower millstone. When he raises himself up, the mighty are afraid because of his crashings. They are beside themselves. Though the sword reaches him, it cannot avail, nor does spear, dart, or javelin. He regards iron as straw and bronze as rotten wood. The arrow cannot make him flee. Sling stones become like stubble to him. Darts are regarded as straw. He laughs at the threat of javelins. His undersides are like sharp potsherds. He spreads pointed marks in the mire. He makes the deep boil like a pot. He makes the sea like a pot of ointment. He leaves a shining wake behind him. One would think the deep had white hair. On earth there is nothing like him which is made without fear. He beholds every high thing. He is king over all the children of pride. Whoa! Here's a whole chapter devoted to the magnificent and terrifying attributes of an extinct animal. Well, at least let's hope he's extinct. Easton's Bible Dictionary has the definition of the word Leviathan as follows. A transliterated Hebrew word meaning twisted, coiled. Well, that didn't help as much. However, when you look at the description of the creature given in this chapter, what do you get? Well, let me just say, I've been to the San Diego Zoo. It's a remarkable place, but they don't have one of these there, thankfully. So what's the point here for even mentioning this creature? Well, here's the answer. God created this awesome animal. Who dares to presume to instruct or rebuke the Creator of such an awesome creature? Many scholars suggest that this is a crocodile. Well... Maybe, but then you have verses 19 to 21, the fire thing out of his nose and mouth. I've never really seen a crocodile do that, have you? It's more likely a description of an extinct animal. Well, whatever it is, stay out of the water. And then Job in chapter 42 finally comes up with something for which to repent. Verse 1. 
Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do everything and that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. You ask, who is this who hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Listen, please, and let me speak. You said, I will question you, and you shall answer me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. Well, here, as you can see, Job replies, very carefully. Keep in mind, this trial didn't happen to Job because of sin in Job's life. However, Job does recognize where he stepped over the line in this process when he says in verse 3, Who is this who hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. I've done that on occasion myself. How about you? Hey, uh, Hey, Bildad, Eliphaz, Zophar, you still looking for some sort of an admission of guilt and repentance from Job? Well, here it is in verses 5 and 6. Here's what he says. I've heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. Job repents for the mere notion that he could possibly question God's motivation, God's attributes or character. How's that for a remedy to the pride Job displayed in Job chapter 29? There is just nothing like realizing that we're nothing, nothing at all compared to God or without God. Maybe it doesn't seem like much to you, but this realization will change a believer's life. Now let's put this whole episode, the whole book, into perspective, shall we? Remember, first of all, Satan's challenge back in Job chapter 1, verse 11. That's where Satan challenges God and says this, But now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. God permitted Satan to destroy most of Job's possessions, but Job did not curse God. Then Satan issued a second challenge to God in Job chapter 2, verse 5. Here's what he said, But stretch out your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will surely curse you to your face. Well, Job's wife even became part of the problem in verse 9 of chapter 2. When it says there, then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. You'll note that her counsel to her husband was precisely what Satan had assumed as his mission. Throughout Job's ordeal, he never once entertained the idea that he might curse God. All of his friends were of the belief that Job must have sinned. But Job knew that he hadn't. In the end, Job maintained his integrity all the way through. Yet he does admit to God in Job chapter 42, verse 3, the following. He says, Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Well, listen. Mission accomplished. It was a tough road, but Job did not curse God, and Job did maintain his integrity, much to the dismay of Satan and to the dismay of Job's wife. Job's trial was a character-building ordeal. It's the same process by which believers are made strong and capable today. I've written two articles. They're short. Take a look at them. One's called Trial, Testing, and Temptation. The other is called Trial versus Chastisement. It's important to know the difference. You can find either of those by looking at the written notes of BibleTrack.org for today's reading and clicking on the link, or you can go to the topic section of BibleTrack.org to find them. 
Now, what about Job's misguided friends? Well, we see them in verses 7 through 9. Verse 7, And so it was, after the Lord had spoken these words to Job, that the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My wrath is aroused against you and your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Now therefore, take for yourselves seven bulls and seven rams, go to my servant Job, and offer up for yourselves a burnt offering, and my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept him, lest I deal with you according to your folly, because you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite, and Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Naamathite, went and did as the Lord commanded them, for the Lord had accepted Job. Chapter after chapter, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar have irritated us with their homemade theology and rebukes against Job. Now it's time for these three to get what's coming to them. And yes, I'm a little disappointed that there's no mention of Elihu here, because he irritated me also, and perhaps more than any of the others. I still cling to the understanding that the first comments of God from the whirlwind were right on the tail of Elihu's comments. Surely he felt strongly rebuked and embarrassed as his speech was immediately discounted by God in front of his whole audience. If that doesn't cause you to lose audience credibility, what does? Take a look at God's decree regarding the counselors. They must make their sacrifices before Job, in verse 8, and have Job pray for them. In other words, not only did God take offense to their false counsel, but their offense was against Job as well. Job's forgiveness of these counselors was a critical piece of their restoration. Now, isn't that interesting? Off the top of the head, but baseless counsel of another requires of them a sin sacrifice. Think about how Christians today throw around counsel based upon only an uninformed hunch. Maybe we should learn a lesson here about giving counsel. Make certain it's based upon Scripture. Their incorrect counsel in the name of God earns them the standing of being sinners in need of forgiveness by God and from the very man upon whom they thrust their bogus counsel. But the book of Job has a happy ending. Job is restored, beginning in verse 10. And the Lord restored Job's losses when he prayed for his friends. Indeed, the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then all his brothers, all his sisters, and all those who had been his acquaintances before came to him and ate food with him in his house. And they consoled him and comforted him for all the adversity that the Lord had brought upon him. Each one gave him a piece of silver and each a ring of gold. Now the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. For he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. He also had seven sons and three daughters. And he called the name of the first Jemima, the name of the second Keziah, the name of the third Karen Hapuk. In all the land were found no women so beautiful as the daughters of Job. And their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. After this, Job lived 140 years and saw his children and grandchildren for four generations. So Job died old and full of days. Well, I'll admit I'd like to have had a couple of chapters devoted to Job's restoration, you know, as a personal reward to make up for all the depressing chapters that we read through. However, the important point here is made. 
God restored Job completely, and he experienced greater prosperity than before. So what about Job's friends and relatives? You know, the ones who were noticeably silent when they thought their friend Job was being judged by God. Well, now that God has spoken and expressed his favor toward Job, they're back, and they're back with gifts. Isn't it funny how prosperity seems to attract friends? At first reading, there was one big unsettled issue in my mind, and that's Job's wife. You remember the one who told Job in chapter 2, verse 9, to curse God and die? Should she get out of this thing unscathed? Well, then I realized that she really didn't. Look at chapter 42, verse 13. It says, He also had seven sons and three daughters. Despite the fact that she bore and had raised ten children to adulthood before, it would appear that even as an older woman, she had to do it all over again another ten times. And so, I'm good with that. Now consider this. The book of Job provides us with our basis for understanding the purpose and course of trial in the lives of believers. It's an important doctrinal book for believers. What is taught about trial in the New Testament is actually founded on the principles found right here in the book of Job. This concludes our podcast for today. I'm Wayne Turner, and if you'd like to read along with our commentary online, go to www.bibletrack.org. Thank you for listening in today. The background music for these podcasts is an original composition written by the music director of Faith Bible Church, Paul Walker.